Well, good morning and welcome to our service. It's good that we can meet together online in this way uh, to worship our God. I know that it's perhaps still a little bit weird uh, worshipping in this way, but let me encourage you again to be uh, singing along with the voices of our congregation. Uh, Singing, it lifts our hearts as well as teaches us truth from God's word. But before we begin singing, uh, let me uh, explain just a couple of things that are going on in the next week. Uh, So this uh, Friday is Good Friday, where we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to do a live stream at 7 p.m., and Tim is going to lead us. This will be a, a shorter service reflecting on the difference the cross made in one man's life, the thief on the cross. There will be some Easter songs included in this service. Uh, So just a reminder that 7 p.m. on Friday. Uh, And then next Sunday, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus uh, and thinking about what that means for us. That'll be at the normal time on Sunday of 10.45. Paul the Apostle writes to the church in Ephesus, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. This morning we're going to be thinking about the cross of Christ, that Jesus has died in our place for our sins. Why did God die for us? Why would he die for people the Bible describes as his enemies? He does it because of amazing grace. And our first hymn Uh, sings of this amazing grace that God has for us. Oh, 
Let us pray. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and boast not in how good we are, but in how great and gracious you are. We sing of what you have done for us by taking our place and bearing our cross. We confess to you how we need the cross. We confess again our sin. We have sinned against you and against one another in word, in thought, and in deed. We have sinned by our negligence. We have sinned unknowingly, and we have even sinned willfully. We ask for forgiveness, knowing that we can do so because Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. We repent of our sin and pray, Holy Spirit, to help us to follow you. Heavenly Father, we are struggling this morning with isolation, but we pray that we would have a real sense of your presence and of community as we unite in our worship of Jesus. Please encourage us and strengthen us today as we turn our eyes upon him and consider what he has done for us. We thank you that you are not quarantined, but are everywhere. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can contain you. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Watch over your people, we pray. We pray especially uh, for widows and widowers who are on their own, that you would encourage and strengthen them for each day. We pray for our healthcare workers, that you would protect them physically, but also mentally and emotionally as they see so much suffering at this time. Please enable them to do their work and to be a strong witness for Jesus. We give you these requests knowing that you hear us because we are your children. We thank you that we can pray these things in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to read uh, one of the historical accounts now of the death of Jesus Christ. It was written in the Gospel of Mark. It's in Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to read uh, to us verses 20 to 38. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. I'll just give you a moment to turn to Mark 15, verses 20 to 38. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, 
but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, and among among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Well, our next song teaches us about this very event that we've just been reading about. It teaches us not only what happened, but also what this death, this crucifixion of Jesus accomplished. Let's sing, Yes, Finished, The Messiah Dies.
We live in very uncertain times at the moment. We're unsure how long uh, we're going to be isolated from each other. We're concerned about vulnerable people that we know and love. There is so much that we just don't know. And in these times, there's a proverb that I was reading this week uh, that says this. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anxiety is a, a concern about an unknown future, and it weighs us down. And in God's Word, the Bible, we have a kind word to cheer the heart. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider, in uncertain times, some old truths that remain true forever. However uncertain things are today, these things we're going to consider in the next couple of weeks are true and certain for all time. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." Notice here how Paul wants to remind the Christians of the gospel. Many of you will know these truths. They are foundational to being a Christian. For many of you, I am not going to tell you anything new this morning that you don't already know. But we need to continually be bringing these truths to mind. Notice here how Paul says that these truths are of first importance to us. They are things that we need to be reminded of because they are the most important things. And as we come to Easter, we are going to consider these most important truths, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These wondrous truths of our faith will encourage us while we are going through these difficult times. So this week, we're going to focus our minds on the cross of Jesus and then next week, we are going to celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus. In those verses in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of dying, of Christ dying rather, according to the Scriptures. When we read here the Scriptures, Paul is referring to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, as we've just been singing, has many ancient shadows of the cross of Christ. In the sacrifices that were made in the lives of different people, and in prophecies that were given. One scripture that teaches us vividly and clearly about the cross of Christ is Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12. And it is in that passage this morning that I want us to focus our minds. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13... And I'll read to you from that verse to chapter 53 and verse 12. I'll just give you a moment uh, so that you can turn to this wonderful uh, passage in Isaiah. 
Let me read from verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And in his prophecy, we see this. The first section, chapters 1 to 39, are concerned really with judgment because of sin. And the second section from chapters 40 uh, to 66 speak about deliverance from judgment, which includes the work of the Messiah who is described 
as the servant of God. Isaiah contains four servant songs which describe the work of this Messiah and how he delivers from God's judgment. And in this passage we have read, it is the final one of these songs and it gives details about the death of the Messiah. Around 700 years before Jesus was even born, the details of his death are spoken about with remarkable precision. The Messiah is Jesus, and what we read here describes how he died, but it also gives details as to why he died. We see in this passage, he died for our sins. Really this morning, I'm going to focus on one verse in Isaiah, chapter 53, and verse 6, which really gives a summary of the teaching of the cross and summarizes nicely this whole section of Isaiah, this whole song. But the song breaks down into four parts that help us understand the death of Jesus. The first part is in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, and it describes how people were appalled or astonished at watching the life and the death of Jesus. The second part of the song, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53, records how unimpressive the life of Jesus was and his death to his contemporaries. They read Messiah, they look at Jesus, and they say, well, what kind of Messiah is this? The third section, where we're going to focus our attention in verse 6, in verses 4 to 6, show why this happened, and then the final section, verses 7 to 12, explain how all that happened really was part of God's will for our salvation. And in verse 6 of chapter 53, Isaiah draws out two points about the cross that we see all through this servant song. And the first point about the cross is this, it was necessary This necessity is shown at the beginning of verse 6. We all, it says, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Sheep are naturally stupid animals. I remember this when I lived in Devon. They would always wander into the road on, on Dartmoor and blocked traffic. But if you beeped your horn, they would disperse and run around madly because of this noise of the horn of your car. They wandered into danger, and they followed each other. Another more perfect example of what Isaiah is talking about here is in the novel Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Some of you may know this story. Uh, The character Gabriel Oak owns a flock of sheep, and his sheepdog who, uh, who, who is not a good sheepdog, chases the sheep over the edge of a cliff. His whole business of owning sheep is destroyed as one after the other, they follow each other over the edge of this cliff and perish on the beach below. As they are running away from this sheepdog, they are totally unaware that one after the other, like lemmings, they are following each other to their death and destruction over this cliff. 
And Isaiah tells us in verse 6 that we are all like this. We have all followed one another from the way that God has set out for humanity. And although we are all different, and we may think about doing life differently, and we may even feel like we are going in different directions, the destination is the same. It's the cliff edge that we are running over to our destruction. Recently, Tim uh, spoke to us in Jeremiah about two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And it illustrated those two cities, the city of man and the city of God, and how Babylon will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be renewed and restored. But the Bible also illustrates life as two roads or two ways. The most famous example, perhaps, is on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks of the narrow way which leads to destruction, and the broad, uh, sorry, that leads, to, that leads to destruction, and the broad way which leads to life. So we can either go God's way, which leads to heaven, or we can rebel and go our own way, which leads to hell. And what Isaiah tells us here is that each of us, like sheep, have gone our own way. We have told God, I know what's best. I want to rule my own life. I don't want your rule over me. Even though the rule of God is good and loving and kind, we have chosen to rule ourselves and to go our own way. And this began in Genesis chapter 3 of the Bible, where in a garden, Adam and Eve lived in paradise under God's good and loving rule, but they chose to rebel and to eat the fruits that they were told not to eat. And their sin separated them from God. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden, which was where the presence of God was and was the source of life. And this led to death. God is a perfect being. The place he dwells is perfect. He cannot abide sin. And so humanity is separated from his presence outside of the garden. And the only way that we can be in the presence of God is if we are perfect. And Jesus spells that out himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But just like the sheep that have followed each other over that cliff, we have all gone our own way. Before uh, the Sunday evening services have uh, stopped, we were studying the Ten Commandments. And all of us have seen, as we've looked at those commandments, how we fail in every single one of them. And in fact, the teaching of Scripture is such that our sinful state is so bad that we don't even realize all that we have done wrong. We know that we have sinned, but there are many ways we don't even realize it. And God's justice demands that sin is punished. And this is obvious for all of us if we think about it. Who wants to live in a world where there is no punishment for sin at all? The problem is, we just think that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's judgment because we think 
that we're not that bad. But we are. Because we haven't just sinned in a small way. We've sinned against God himself, the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe, who is good and loving and kind. It's serious. And it gets worse because there is nothing that we can do about this. In Genesis chapter 3, God puts an angel with a flaming sword in the way of the entrance to the Garden of Eden where God dwells. And this angel with the flaming sword shows our great problem. Because outside of the Garden of Eden, we die. God is the the source of life, and outside of his presence, there is death. But if we try to get back into the garden, you have to go through a flaming sword, which means we will die. Outside we die, we try to get in, we die. And the Bible teaches us that the end result of this is hell, where we are forever under the judgment of God paying for our sin that we can never pay for ourselves. Now, this is all horrible news. And in fact, you may be wondering why at the beginning I uh, quoted Psalm, uh, sorry, Proverbs chapter 12 about a kind word to cheer the heart because you'll be thinking, well, Steve, this isn't a kind word. This isn't really very cheery. But I put it to you that from that verse in Proverbs, we are anxious about many things, but we're perhaps not really anxious about the most important thing. Although at the moment COVID-19 is scary and it's right that we are concerned for people, there is a far greater and bigger and more serious problem in the world than even COVID-19. There is a more serious problem that is behind all sickness all suffering, and all death in this world. And that problem is that the world is broken because of sin. And because of sin, there is death and there is judgment coming to all of us. There is no face mask that will stop it. No vaccine that will prevent it. No medicine that will cure it ourselves. We cannot do this on our own. Even if we are cured from COVID-19, there are innumerable other ways that death will catch up with us. And then we come face to face with the living God and we will be judged. This is something that we ought to be anxious about so that what I am about to say becomes the kindest word that can ever cheer the heart. The kind of kind word that takes away even anxiety about the greatest of problems. Here is the kind word. God loves us and he brings us salvation. Salvation from the greatest problem of all. Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And his message of salvation is fulfilled hundreds of years later by someone with another similar name. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, we read these words. This is talking about Mary. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. That's why it's similar in meaning to Isaiah. And he saves us by coming to the cross. He does what is needed to save us. The cross was necessary and is the only way of salvation. Now we see this in this servant song in Isaiah. Notice with me something which is very strange in these verses. They are written in the past tense. 700 years before Jesus was born, we read his, about his death on the cross like it's already happened. Notice that in these verses. For example, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, and so on and so forth. How can Isaiah write 700 years before this happened as if it had already happened? The reason he does this is because this plan of salvation, this cross, was in the plan of God all along. God is above space and time. And so in God's mind, this has always already happened. This was the plan all along. Jesus' death was not just some accident. He wasn't a martyr who was just unfortunate. This was the plan of God from eternity past. We see this in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Just look at that verse. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus went to the cross, he prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It was not possible. If there was any other way, Jesus would have taken another way. The cross was the only way. It was the will of God. It was necessary to save us sheep that have gone astray. So after looking at why it is necessary, we might be thinking of another question. Well, how does this cross save us? What does it accomplish? And that's what we see in the next section of Isaiah 53, verse 6. We are shown the accomplishment of the cross. Notice what happens there in verse 6 to the Messiah. So we've gone our own way. We deserve to be punished for our sin. And Isaiah says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity means sin. So our sin, the things that we have done wrong, are placed on him, are laid on him. And this theme is repeated throughout uh, this section uh, in Isaiah chapter 53. Just look at some of these verses. Uh, look at verse 4. Surely he took up 
our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And then uh, later on, at the end of verse 12, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So all through this song, we read that Jesus was punished in our place for our sins. And this is called substitution. Uh, we understand what the word substitution means in uh, the sports context. Uh, I know we haven't seen much sport lately, but hopefully you've not forgotten what a substitute is. In a, a football or a rugby match, one player goes off and is replaced by another player. That's a substitute. It's a swap, a switch. And Jesus is our substitute. He switches places with us. He dies in our place. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. But in the New Testament, after Jesus had died and risen again, it is taught very clearly there too. Perhaps no place teaches it more clearly than one particular verse where Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthians in chapter, two, uh, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. He says these words, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see here in these words what Isaiah was talking about. Jesus had no sin. This means that he was perfect. He was completely righteous. Uh, a few months or a couple of months ago when um, I spoke on an introduction to the Ten Commandments, I asked you to do something which I'm going to ask you to do again, to meditate on. We are often rightly amazed at the miracles of Jesus. They are amazing historical realities, things that he did. But an aspect of the, of, of the life of Christ that we don't meditate on enough or don't think about is the fact that Jesus never sinned. He never had one thought that was ever wrong. No words ever spoke out of turn. Not one action that was sinful. No accidental mishaps that led to bad consequences. Everything he did was perfect. Can you imagine how awesome that is? And yet he died as a sinner. When Paul says in these verses uh, in 2 Corinthians that he was made to be sin for us, he means that Jesus was counted or treated as if he was a sinner. Or in the words of Isaiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That phrase there in Isaiah, laid on him, means to fall on. It's like a, a guillotine 
that comes down on someone's neck. It's a violent thing. It was a punishment. It was the cross. Our sin, my sin, your sin, was laid violently, laid on him. I asked you to think about Jesus' perfection, which is, I think, impossible for us to do because it's so alien to our experience. I don't think it's too hard for us to think about our own sin. It won't take us long to think about when we've done something wrong or thought something or said something. We probably only need to think about this morning. But all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions, those things that we know about, those things that we don't even know about, those things we've done on purpose, those things we've done unknowingly, on, by accident, all of it, every single sin was laid on him. All of the sin for all of his people, for all of time, was laid on Jesus. But Paul, in this verse in 2 Corinthians, shows us even more. It was laid on Jesus, he was treated as a sinner, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was counted as a sinner and an exchange takes place that we are counted as if we are as righteous as Jesus. The illustration that's often used for this is that of a, a t-shirt swap, where a filthy t-shirt that is full of dirt and grime is taken off, and a pure t-shirt that is completely clean is taken off, and the people wearing them swap t-shirts, so that the, the sinner puts on the clean and pure one, and Jesus puts on the filthy, grimy one. A swap takes place. Jesus puts on all of our sin, and we are clothed in all of his righteousness. And Jesus could do this because when he died for sin, he had no sin of his own to pay for. And so God's justice is totally satisfied. The cross accomplishes justice for our sin so that we can be forgiven and be in a relationship with God. If you think earlier on I said about that flaming sword of judgment that blocks the way to God's presence, what Jesus does on the cross is, is, is he goes through the fire of judgment for us so we can be brought back into the presence of God and the source of life. He is judged for us. Now again, some of you may be wondering, well, that, that's, that's amazing, but why would God do this? Why would God, who is perfect, die for rebels who have shaken our fist at him? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
It was love. Or as we read in Ephesians at the beginning of our service this morning, it is by grace, undeserved favor. Or as one hymn writer puts it, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. He died for us because he loves us. It is just amazing grace. What the cross accomplishes is what Christian theology terms justification. Justification is a legal declaration that says that we are right in the sight of God. Our sins are completely forgiven, our past, our present, our future, and we are seen legally before God the judge as Jesus is, righteous. Now, that is a wonderful truth. That is a word to make the heart glad, isn't it? But why should it make us glad? What does this mean to our lives today? Well, this truth that Isaiah tells us from 2,700 years ago is something that is very applicable right here today in the 21st century. We can see the application of the cross. Let me give you some uh, ways that this applies to us today. One application is that we are free from the guilt and the shame of sin. All of us have, have done things that we are ashamed about. Now, I'm being uh, filmed for this service uh, on a Sunday. I have prepared this sermon. I have prepared for you all seeing me here this morning. But if this camera followed my life 24 hours a day for, for, for the whole of my life, and even it managed somehow to film what I was thinking and what I said in secret, there would be so much guilt and shame. And there would be for all of us, wouldn't there, if we're honest? But all of that guilt and shame is placed on Jesus. All the things that we have done, they are forgiven. They are paid for. And so we don't need to feel that guilt and shame. Again, Paul, the apostle, writes in Romans, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul's talking here in terms of, of uh, legal language, in a court. In a court of law, a defendant has crimes that they are charged with. But the Christian has been justified and there are no charges to bring because Jesus has paid for them. Now the main charge in our lives really comes from Satan. He makes us feel like we can't be a Christian because we've done too much wrong. We can look at our lives and we can despair because we know what we are like. The fact is, though, that we are not good enough, but Jesus is. But when we feel the charge against us, when we're reminded of what we have done, 
Paul tells us, no one can charge you and condemn you. When someone accuses you before God, Paul says, Jesus is interceding for you. And he tells God, what, what, what is that they've just said? No, I've paid for that. No one can charge you. No one can say that they have done this. I have paid for it. There is no condemnation. Satan, in fact, is called in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren. And he comes to us and he knocks on the door of our heart and he says, you are not good enough. Look at what you've done. What kind of person do you think you are that you can call yourself a Christian? And when Satan does that, and he does, we don't even need to go to the door. We can send Jesus to the door. And Jesus answers Satan and he says, what is it you've got to say? I've paid for those things. Christ lives in us. When we find Satan accusing us, send Jesus to the door. Or sing a hymn. One wonderful hymn that explains the truth that I'm just explaining uh, is one that we're going to sing a little bit later. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How awesome is that? No guilt, no shame. Christ has paid it all. A second application is that we can be sure that God loves us and that we are precious to him. Sometimes we can feel pretty rubbish. And for some of you who are shut indoors on your own, you can feel really sad at the moment. But here's again a truth that can cheer the heart. Brother or sister, you are precious to God. He loved you so much that he died for you. A third application, some of you may be asking a question. This is a good word, but how can I receive these wonderful benefits? How can I have a relationship with God? How can I be free from my guilt and shame? We receive these things by trusting in the sacrifice that Jesus has made, trusting that he has done enough to save us from our sins. Recognizing that there's nothing that I can do to save myself, but I plead with Jesus to forgive my sin, knowing that he will because he has died for it. And the final application I want to draw out for us is this. That we must show that same love that Jesus has shown us to others. Again, Paul the Apostle, uh, I've, I've quoted from him uh, a great deal this morning. He says this in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Dearly loved children, let us show love and forgiveness to others. Now this is, of course, applicable to us all, but for those of us that as families are locked in together with each other, perhaps it's a reminder this morning that we need to love and forgive one another as Christ has done this for us. While in isolation, there perhaps is more time to think than we normally have. Well, why don't you spend time thinking on the cross? Anxiety weighs the heart down, but thinking on the cross is a kind word to cheer the heart. Think about how it was necessary. Think about all that it accomplished for our salvation. Think about how it applies to our lives every single day. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We live in uncertain times. But today we've looked at a certainty from the past, the cross of Christ. I'm excited next Sunday to look at another certainty from the past, the resurrection, that gives us certainty for the future. But this is the first Sunday of this month, and normally we would be having the Lord's Supper together this morning. One of the sad consequences of our isolation is that we can't celebrate uh, the, the death of Jesus together with the bread and the wine as we normally would. But why don't each of us take some time today, just in our families or on our own, to meditate on the cross and just think about what Jesus has done for us. And may the meditations be a kind word that cheers the heart. Well, in response to what we have heard, we're going to sing a couple of songs. The first song is uh, uh, some of Isaiah 53 that we'll sing together. And then we're going to sing some of what the cross has accomplished as we worship God and sing before the throne of God above. Let us worship our God now as we sing together.
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.